Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, my guest today is Brian Grimm. Uh, he's the president of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation. He's the global chairman of Dare to Overcome. Uh, the website for reference is religiousfreedomandbusiness.org. Uh, so we're going to talk about his work with uh, these organizations and what he does. Brian, thanks for coming. It's great to be with you, Richard. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit of a background on yourself, and then we'll uh, we'll get into your current work. Yeah, well, I've had a very diverse background. I've worked overseas beginning in 1982, worked in uh, the People's Republic of China, mostly in the Western region, in Xinjiang. My kids, four of my kids were born there in the 1980s. And then I worked in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s through the 1990s, worked in the Middle East, and then came back to the U.S. when my kids went to college and did a Ph.D. and studied quantitative sociology and, and ended up measuring how governments and societies restrict people's uh, free practice to believe or or even not believe in a faith or a religion. Oh, well, were you observing in the 80s when you were in China and when you were also in Russia? Or is it now that it's far worse or different, or what's your observation? Well, it's it's uh, different. So in the nineteen, uh, in terms of religious freedom, in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, surely the biggest threats to you know people's freedom to follow a faith, have a faith, change their faith, or have no faith at all, was the actions of governments, and particularly communist governments were you know devoted. In, in some ways, to eradicating religion. You know, as Marx said, religion's the opiate of the people. It, it sort of drugs them into a lack of awareness of reality, uh, was the communist perspective. So uh, they had a mission, you know, to dispel people of these, what they considered myths and and, um, and false ideas. And so that was really the greatest challenge. And then uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of many former communist countries, then the th- the threats to religious freedom changed to being more a non-state actors, and and especially in after nine with the events of September 11th, 2001, 9/11, where you had some guys more or less you know living out in the middle of nowhere who orchestrated you know a massive attack, and then that led to a number of things, including the uh, Arab Spring and other you know other movements that that really triggered not just uh, Al-Qaeda, but other groups like ISIS. And then for those years, that was really the greatest threat coming from uh, groups in society. And and sort of my research has been to look at the connection between the two when you have government, high government restrictions on religion or belief, and then uh, high social hostilities towards people of different beliefs than, say, the, the society, then those two work in tandem to lead to violence and conflict. So, you know, and then looking at today, you know, one of the greatest challenges is the rise of religious nationalism and other forms of, you know, nationalism then defines 
a country or a, or a region by a particular faith to the extent that those who you know have a different view are, are even viewed as traitors or not loyal. So that so that's a growing threat today. But communism's still there, especially with China, uh, and and it's you know continuing to seek to export its model of how society should be run, where the communist party is the one that decides you know really everything for what how a society can work and really a religion continues to be viewed not just as a you know wrong thinking but dangerous thinking so in china it's viewed as a, a threat to national security uh, so you know the challenges continue they change from time to time and uh, and so i've been observing that you know from the inside and you know in in different countries as well as re, as studying it so you mentioned religious nationalism what is that and uh, you're saying it's a problem or what, what's the situation what is it well, yeah, so it's a sort of religious nationalism is when you sort of define your country as this is this country is a Christian country, this country is a, a Muslim country, this country is a Hindu country or Buddhist country or atheist country. So defining by a belief to such an extent that those who have a different belief than the one that you think the country should be following are viewed as unwelcome or viewed as a nuisance or viewed in, in some way that's less than equal. So that the nationalism rises generally when sort of politics whips it up into viewing their, you know, your, your life, your identity is under threat. And then, you know, getting rallying people around that cause. So, you know, sort of nationalism often rises in in an atmosphere where the politics are trying to, you know, garner support. So it's it's not generally something that rises, you would say, you know, out of out of your local church or mosque or synagogue or temple. But it, it tends to be some leader who's sort of whipping up people. Uh, into support and, and and religion becomes one of those things that he gets he or she gets people to rally around. Yeah, I've heard like in India, the Hindu nationalists and Modi Narendra Modi is uh, gets promoting Hindu nationalism, and they may be pushing, you know, more heavily on the Muslims lately. What what have you seen? Yeah, so I do, I do a lot of work in India, and India is, I mean, one of the most religiously diverse countries, and historically it's been, uh, I mean, it has a long history where religion's been, you know, part of it, part of it in various ways. Muslims ruled the country before it was the current India for centuries, and then coming out of that, once they were no longer in the rule, still Hindus are, are the large, vast majority. So the sort of the politics in India, you know, religion... You could say culture and is all part of that. And so, you know, there's a sense, and you have to look at what happened after the British uh, relinquished control in India and they gained their independence. There was a debate, should should we just have one two separate countries, one for the Muslims and one for Hindus, and then there are other minorities like Christians and Baha'is and Jains and Zoroastrians, known as Parsis and others, Sikhs, of course. But... In the end, Gandhi uh, and Nehru wanted to keep India together uh, for everyone, but then sort of head of the Muslim League, he wanted to have a separate country, so he convinced the British to have a Pakistan for Muslims, and then an India for everybody that didn't want to be part of Pakistan, so to speak. And and the, But that led to a partition, and more than a million people were killed as they tried to switch borders and, 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 and all that. So, you know, religion is just really... 
part of the history and part of you know what even formed current day India. So in that process, Pakistan defined itself as a as an Islamist nation or a Muslim nation, but India has a secular constitution where they're looking to define themselves as a country for everyone, and uh, every group has has a place. So if you you know look at the r- rhetoric. You hear both things, you know, that, you know, okay, Pakistan got to be Muslim. How come we can't make India Hindu? It doesn't that sound fair. Uh, So you hear that. But at the same time, yeah, but it's still India's for everybody. And, you know, we want to make sure everyone's included. So you'll hear, you know, different versions of that, even from the same, you know, same person. And, you know, it's it's evolving thought and and it's not clear how it's all going to turn out. It's a very live issue. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I saw in your bio that uh, there was a mention of uh, that religion actually adds to the economy as its own uh, GDP, essentially. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, I mean, when you look at religion, you know, it's something that you think, well, how could you measure its economic input? It's like trying to measure the value of love. Well, you know, when a few years ago when my daughter got married and, you know, and her then fiance had to buy a ring and then there was a wedding and reception and wedding dresses and people coming from out of town. And, you know, you can't really measure love, but you can measure the results of it. And, you know, now they have four kids and, you know, that love resulted in joy, but also you know, a lot more expense. And, and so you can measure those kind of things. So in, a, in, in that way, I've been ever measure sort of the impact of religion and its institutions, its uh, so, it social goods that it produces. So I've measured it that way. And then there's the other side is when you look at religious freedom, broadly defined, and you measure that, then you can see how that correlates with other things like sustainable development and other goods for society. So like in the U.S., when we did a, a national measurement of the economic contribution of religion, we looked at three things. One is uh, activities of congregations, so that, and that adds about $400 billion of economic activity in the U.S. every year. We've done studies and also in Canada found similar results, though lesser numbers. So if you think of that number, where does all that money come from or go to, well, church, church, church buildings, synagogues, temples, mosques—you know—all of that takes money to build them and maintain them and pay for electricity and lighting, and so all of that's finance that is going into the economy. Uh, you hire people, and that's going into the economy. You pay somebody to plow the snow; that's going into the economy. But then, in addition to that, it's uh, services provided. You know, many congregations you know, provide addiction recovery groups, you know, whether it's through Alcoholics Anonymous or other programs, many denominations even have their own sort of 12-step type programs. 
And you know, all of that you can measure how many how many lives are saved each year that are you know don't end up either having committed an overdose or ending up being institutionalized. So you know, you start measuring those things, and you know that comes up to more than four hundred billion dollars a year. And then religious institutions, whether it's you know Brandeis University, which is a you know, a Jewish-related school or Baylor University, which is Baptist, or the Catholic University of America, of course, is Catholic. So all of these institutions, whether it's education, healthcare, like one in six people who goes to a hospital in the U.S. is seen in a Catholic hospital. Um, so all of that's economic activity. And then the last category we look at is faith-related business. So like the Knights of Columbus, uh, they're a fraternal order within the Catholic Church, uh, but they have $100 billion worth of life insurance in effect. So it's a business. And other companies like some that you may have heard of are like uh, Hobby Lobby. They had a Supreme Court case that de- that the Supreme Court recognized that they they do have a faith-based identity, uh, you know, and it's a, as a company, the owners are Christian and they look at their company as a Christian or others, even publicly traded companies like Coca-Cola Consolidated, the largest bottlers of Coke, part of their mission is to glorify God. And, you know, they have faith-based sort of leadership mentoring in the company. So, you know, that's a, that adds another sort of third bucket of religious impact in measuring it. So, so that all comes up to about $1.2 trillion a year, which would make religion, if it were its own com- country, religion in the U.S., it would be like 15th largest national economy in the world, you know, bigger than, you know, 180 other countries in terms of GDP. So it's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's not like, you know, that religion has all that money in the bank and it's just sitting there, but it's all being used to to serve congregations, but also the wider public, you know, you, you don't have to belong to the church to attend an AA meeting, you know, in the, in the church basement, you know, it's the, these churches are not, you know, not just clubs for, the members, but active, you know, actively reaching out to the community. Well, you're the first person to establish this this monetary act of religion, and you know, when you saw the figure, were you surprised? Well, no one had ever done a national number like that before. Others had been, and and really, this work built on the research of others, including uh, someone from University of Pennsylvania by the name of Ra- Ram Kanan, and he had been looking at and quantifying the economic impact of congregations in Philadelphia. And then he did a number of other cities. So, you know, people were working on this, but no one had ever tried to put an, uh, pull it all together and look at all the different factors and not just congregations. So this really was the first time. And in terms of surprise at the number, I can say that I'll give an example. Uh, the Guardian newspaper from the UK which is the fifth largest newspaper in in terms of not, not circulation, but measured by you know website visits in the world. They did a story when this uh, when when our research came out, and uh, they had I forget what it was uh, nineteen thousand shares of the story. You know, not just nineteen thousand views, but few, you know millions of views. And in comparison, just to see how surprising that story was, that our research came out the same year that Donald Trump was elected president, which was surprising to, there were few that were predicting he would beat Hillary Clinton. It was an unexpected result. And when that story headline came out on The Guardian, that story was shared only 17,000 times. 
So even so, you could say that that religion, you know, matters in terms of money uh, and contribution was more surprising to people than Donald Trump was elected president, which was you know not an expected result either. Well, once you get this calculation, what can you do with that? What new light does it shed on the role of religion? And do governments know about this? Have you been able to advise them so that they see it as an interesting uh, source of productivity in the, you know, in the economy? Yeah, I think the, what it does is it, it helps um, people who might be skeptical of the value of religion because, you know, a growing, uh, a growing number of people in the United States and, and Europe and Western, Western countries uh, are growing up in families that are religiously unaffiliated. And so you have not just people who are religiously unaffiliated, but now whole families are, and then they, you know, their kids never go to Sunday school or, you know, experience bar mitzvah or, you know, whatever the religious tradition is. So, you know, for those people, it's like, well, why does religious freedom matter? You know, why would why would religion be a protected category? You know, in Title Seven, we have different categories of people, you know, both their race, their heritage, their gender, different things are protected by law so that you can't discriminate against them. And people say, Well, why religion? You know, because headlines, you know, in most newspapers, what do they report? Well, it's not news that, you know, a, a priest or a clergy person you know, help somebody who's down and out or, you know, help somebody who's suffering. That's not news. But if some, if a clergy person, you know, does something illegal of some sort, well, then that's news. And so the news is often reporting, you know, if you look at the news, you get a, a distorted picture of religion that you only hear the bad things. And if you're not religiously active, that might be your whole view of religion. So I think by quantifying the positive economic contribution religion makes and then what that means in terms of, you know, goods and services, such as, I think, I forget the exact number, but something like seven times more people view, go to a religious, like a church or, you know, synagogue, a cathedral, they go to a religious house of worship to view arts and architecture. Seven times more people do that than go to museums in the U.S. on an annual basis. So right there, religious buildings are a, a source of you know national enrichment that many people ex access and 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 use them you know to enrich their lives through art and you know those kind of findings if you if you're not religious you might think well, what's the value of it all why do we why do we give religious organizations a tax break and you know why do we give special protections to people who are of faith and, and all of that. So I think it, it sheds light on the value of religion for people who don't experience it. Yeah, very interesting. What other research are you, go, are you undertaking right now, or what are you looking into at this moment? What are some questions? Well, the most, uh, the, really one of the most exciting things that we're working on is that we have an annual index that measures corporate uh, religious equity, diversity, and inclusion or we call it the ready index. And so, you know, like in this diversity and then, you know, with the recent Supreme Court decision to end affirmative action, you know, all these, you know, diversity commitments are in the news and people are sort of looking at that. And one of the, you know, sort of one reason among some people that diversity has a bad name is it's focused on certain aspects of diversity, but not all of them, including religion. 
And, you know, religion is just, like I mentioned, is just as protected under Title VII uh, as any other, as the other characteristics, including sexual, now sexual orientation, sex, gender, race, et cetera. So, you know, why haven't corporations paid as much attention to that? And I had an article at the World Economic Forum on, you know, what, you know, why, why aren't corporations doing this? And so we set out to measure the Fortune 500 and how they're doing. And we've just released uh, in May the fourth annual index. And, and what, you know, what we found is that the majority of companies aren't, haven't included religion as part of their diversity, but some of the biggest and best companies in the, in the, in the world do Google and uh, Texas Instruments, uh, American Express, American Airlines, PayPal, company called Equinix, Target even, has included religion as part of their diversity commitments. And so that's what we're measuring. And, and, we're, and we're seeing these companies, once you measure it, then you know they want to compete to do the best. So Intel is the most faith-friendly company this year, according to the index. Last year was American Airlines, and the year before it was Intel. The first year was Google. So you know they, these companies, in a good-hearted spirit, compete to you know want to show show off that yeah we are a faith-inclusive faith and belief, not just religious belief, but even atheists and agnostics are part of this inclusion, so that people can feel like they can bring their whole soul to work, not just their whole self to work and their whole spirit, you know, and, and whatever that might be for people. So that, I think that, you know, that ongoing research is, you know, we initially did it just by looking at publicly information available uh, from the companies, but now companies are opting in and completing a survey each year. And, and then the companies that don't, we can still assess them externally. So I, you know, I think that's having a lot of good, you know, it's, it's interesting research, but it's also, you know, helping to stimulate companies to address this imbalance where certain categories are covered in diversity, but others aren't. And then it's also getting attention internationally. What do you um, mean? So this, for the first time we had, in addition to the U.S. Fortune 500, we had companies from the global 500, such as Accenture, Bosch, SAP, uh, opting in to participate in the index. And then we had some Europe-only companies uh, such as TPAC, that's uh, the yoga tea company, one of the, lar the largest independent tea manufacturers in the world. Also had Ovo Energy, one of the large energy companies in Britain, uh, and uh, another another British company. And in fact, this got the attention of 10 Downing Street and the UK Treasury. So we're having a meeting actually next week with ministers from, it was supposed to be held at 10 Downing Street, but just yesterday, Joe Biden announced he's visiting UK and we we're going to have this meeting at 10 Downing Street in their state dining room to bring corporate leaders together with some of the ministers from the government. But that room's been reallocated for Joe Biden's visit. So we will probably hold it in the Treasury Department. But it's, you know, the government there is interested to learn more about this. C-suite people from some of the top companies there, like Rolls-Royce, which is uh, one of the most faith-friendly companies in, in the UK, Aviva, a large insurance company, plus uh, the international companies, Google, will participate in the meeting, Salesforce, Amer American Express, and others. So, uh, you know, we're looking at, and we'll have a, a conference in November 20th hosted at Salesforce 
tower in London where we bring all these companies together. And we're doing the same thing in India where we're bringing together companies that uh, are, you know, seeing how faith is uh, and belief and culture is part of the, the rich diversity which make their, makes their company strong. So it's a very positive story because, you know, if you think of, you know, just globally, uh, I'll give one example from Intel. So the a guy, one of their guys from Costa Rica, from the Intel group in Costa Rica, got assigned a project to work, lead a project in Muslim-majority Malaysia. And he had never even met Muslims, yet know, you know, how am I going to work in that culture? And then Intel has these employee resource groups that are set up people faith, so they company-sponsored but employee-led groups. And head of the Christian group, this guy was asking, how am I going to do this? He said, oh, I know Hadi Shrifi. He's that a Muslim group. I bet she'd help out. And then just informally, Hadi started coaching the guy from Costa Rica, resulting in business success. And there was just recently a Wall Street Journal article reporting on all this. And, you know, we went and the reporter wanted to just verify that story was true. And, and we reached out to Hadi and he said, oh, yeah, after, you know, after that, I'm just, you know, it just continues, you know, I'm just helping people, you know, navigate you know, if they've got work in the Muslim, you know, in Muslim areas, uh, helping them, you know, work towards business success. So, you know, when companies open their door to faith and people don't have to hide it, then you have resources such as I've just described, you know, that you can uh, help each other understand what it means to work in a Muslim majority country or a Hindu majority company or a Christian majority company uh, or a Jewish guy. There's only one in Israel, but like Salesforce, they, their group is called Faith Force. In Israel, they have a special program, employee recruitment program, where they reach out to the under sort of the economically depressed communities and get them to get on track to get trained to do jobs uh, as part of their work in, in Salesforce in Israel. And they particularly reach out to Arabs, uh, Palestine, you know, Arab, Arab Israelis and uh, ultra Orthodox Israelis, both of whom have lower education, like the ultra Orthodox tend to not go to the schools beyond the religious school or go to college. And especially the women that don't get edu education at, at the same level as others in Israel, and the same with some of the Arab populations, Arab Israelis, and they recruit them and then they put them together, you know, in teams to work together. And the re result is, you know, in this country that is often struggling with religion, you know, how to get the different faiths to work together, right in the company, they're bringing that together. So it's not that it's, you know, it not only helps the company, but when a company can address some of these religious dynamics, you can help the country and the culture that you're working in. Are there, I don't know, has anyone advised anyone or give guidelines or their workshops for facilitating conversations between, you know, religious groups and non-religious groups, et cetera, or is it just being studied to see what's out there and whatever happens, happens? You mean within companies? Yeah, within companies to have, you know, have dialogues with, uh, you know, there are different employees and contractors that are religious, not religious, you know, have this idea, that idea from this background, that background. Yeah. Well, you know, how much of that is going on for for all sub, you know, I hear a lot about, oh, we have this policy of diversity or have, we have this policy of this or that. Again, is there much instruction or is it, oh, just be aware of this and make sure you do it right without any, any guidance? Yeah, well, what, yeah, once uh, a company decides to, 
include religion as part as an okay thing in the company you know however that's manifested so it it like in Tyson Foods they have a commitment to the spiritual care of every person in the company and they hire chaplains uh, full-time chaplains one staff of different faiths and backgrounds to provide a ministry of presence compassionate care to all their employees so so then you you know they they're doing what HR would some people think HR did years ago, you know, sort of care for the people. Now HR is mostly one man managing, you know, all the policies and all that. So when you have a sort of faith friendly component, it might be chaplains and AZZ, which is the largest uh, gal metal galvanizing company in the, in the U S they credit, they have a chaplain program as well. And they credit them to save having saved the company during the pandemic because Everybody in that industry were considered essential workers, you know, the guys out on the people out on the shop floor. And, you know, when they hear essential worker, they hear expendable worker, you know, because, you know, they don't they don't care about our health, but the white collar people can work remotely. But but no, they had uh, chaplains right on the floor just there to work with them, hear, hear what's going on, the problems they're having, the fa family problems, whatever the issues and and so that faith friendliness actually provides people with resources to help people and not and and interact with people. So that's one way it manifests. But these employee resource groups, uh, whether it's an interfaith group or faith-based groups within the company, that provides channels for programming. So like at Dell Technologies, their interfaith employee group, they developed you know sort of fact-based information on different faiths and what you should know about your you know muslim neighbor who's working you know your muslim colleague you know what challenges do they face in the workplace or a christian colleague or a jewish colleague you know what does ramadan mean and what's the fa this fasting all about it when is it and so you know they 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 help inform educate within the companies but sort of the bigger thing is that it gives an official voice for people in the company so like at Google, when they, you know, before five, six years ago, Google was, you know, a, a no, no religion zone. We don't do religion. But once they started their inner belief network, which has 10,000 or more members around the world, then they gave an official voice so that, you know, when people want to block their calendar, to, if you're a Muslim and pray on Friday, well, now that policy says you can do that before they couldn't or you know, the Google bars, you know, their food courts and the headquarters and their big offices before they didn't have halal or kosher food. And so that meant, you know, like if you want to keep kosher, you can't eat with your colleagues where a lot of work ideas happen. So, you know, then they were able to change those policies or even on the issues like, you know, there's different issues that come up where, uh, you know, some, you know, some state or city is enacting some policy in the People want to say, well, let's boycott that place. But, you know, it, it may be that that policy is something people of faith like. And so you can have a voice within the company say, hey, you know, we, we actually see it. What's We see that social issue differently than, and you might want to take us into account. And so, uh, you know, all those things help to make religion not a taboo topic, but one that can be discussed and discussed intelligently. I know um, the treatment can't be... 100% evenly applied or even close. Do you see that pretty good attempts are being made or do you see that it's very lopsided in its application where certain uh, groups are being 
treated more preferentially than others? Like, what's your overall observation? I know it's different everywhere, but what well, do you see? Well, I think that once, so, I mean, when it's in terms of, you know, sort of diversity, what it's trying to do is make sure everybody feels included, that everybody belongs. That's one way to look at diversity programs. And so if that's the perspective, then maybe there's a group that really is being excluded. So like, even if you take religion, for example, certain religious groups have problems that others others don't, especially those who have are visible have a visible manifestation of their faith like uh, Sikhs wear a turban the men do many of the men do and you, you know like after 9/11 a lot of Sikhs were mistaken for Muslims and they received a lot of abuse and and you know people see somebody with a turban and it's like you know they they wonder about that and they might have attitudes about that so it would be right to have some special awareness training about what is a Sikh and you know, what, why do they wear a turban? And, you know, what are the fundamentals of their belief? Uh, just to dispel, you know, dispel misconceptions about them. So so, so that's sort of, you know, what, what in their best approaches diversity tries to do is, you know, who's, you know, who might be misunderstood or might be left out of our company, of our company because of that. Or you can even think of, keeping on the topic of religion, you know, join us for happy hour, you know, and, and a lot of business gets done there. Well, what about members of the church? It's just Christ of Latter-day Saints who don't drink. Many Baptists don't drink. Muslims in general don't drink. And, you know, they're, that's going to exclude them. So, you know, just I think what what the diversity is trying to do is say, well, let's understand each other to, to make sure that we're not doing things that unintentionally exclude. So, you know, sometimes, you know, the the group that's being excluded might be characterized by race or gender or sexual orientation or, or other characteristics. So I think it's always a, you know, a balance. You're always looking to make sure everyone's included in that. But religion has been the last big category to be, start being added. And so I think there's a lot of work to go there, but some of these big companies are really, you know, leaning into this in very positive ways. Very good. Well, Brian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? It sounds like you're, you know, you've been involved in a lot of groups, a lot of organizations. You're always moving. Um, how can people follow you and see what you're doing? Well, you can you can uh, follow us on LinkedIn, Religious Freedom and Business Foundation. That's you know we engage a lot there. Uh, you you mentioned our website, religiousfreedomandbusiness.org. Also, a shortcut to that is faithandbusiness.org. Those are ways you can uh, connect with us. And, you know, we're always glad to provide, you know, if there are companies uh, out there, if, you know, if you haven't gotten into this space, we can provide training. We have hundreds and hundreds of videos on our website of companies sharing their story. And that's often the best way for this to spread from what is how it spreads from one company to another. And that that's one thing we love to do is connect companies, you know, with companies who are already doing this and, and they can learn how. Well, very good. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Great to be with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.